I would have given the book away, you know, someone mm. just like, I'll pay, I'll publish it. We'll bind, we'll bind it up and everything. Yeah, I mean, I'd have taken a happy meal for this book. You know what I mean? What's good? I'm Nikisha Elise Williams, and this is Black and Published, bringing you the journeys of writers, poets, playwrights, and storytellers of all kinds. On this episode, author Chris Stuck joins us to talk about his debut short story collection, Give My Love to the Savages. During our conversation, we discuss the ubiquity and absurdity of the word nigger, what it means to construct a story, and why Chris said he had to accept failure and how doing so helped him become a better writer. I was never a super goal-oriented person. I think that's I was just just going going through life and just going wherever life took me. In some ways, I mean, that might have been because I was like, you know, a super pothead when I was younger or something. But <laughs> but uh, at some point, I got I'm one of these people that finally like learned what goals are in their like late 30s or mid mid 30s, and and I've actually started to work toward them. In setting his goals, Chris embraced the short story format pulling from his own life as a biracial black man to explore masculinity, sexuality, and race. He explains how this in-depth examination of America began with his very first short story, uniquely told from the perspective of a murdered teen in Money, Mississippi. That story is next, when Black and Published continues. When did you know that you were a writer? Um, probably not till college. Um, that was when I finally sort of discovered writing or my desire to write. But I think before that, I was trying to write and didn't realize it. Probably in like high school and stuff. Like whenever we would have um, the opportunity to do either uh, like a straight up paper or a creative project i would always go for the creative project because i figured there's no there's no wrong answer when it's creative so yeah it wasn't until college when i really got into books and it was actually a creative assignment in college that i actually wrote my first like short story i guess um and then uh you know from there it just blossomed i guess but it took a long time Okay, I'm kind of the same way. Like, I never like taking those final tests. I always liked when I had like final papers. So, do you remember the assignment that you had in undergrad where you wrote the first short story and was like, okay, this feels right? Yeah, yeah, I remember exactly what it is. Is it was actually about Emmett Till, Um, but I think I was a sophomore, and I think I might have been like a business major or something, but. I hadn't fully declared English yet. And, um, and we had a graduate assistant teaching us. It was a literature class. And we read this Lewis Norton book called Wolf Whistle, which is about Emmett Till, but he's a white writer, white Southern writer. And uh, it's about everything around Emmett Till. But I think it's from like maybe the wife of the, the people who killed Emmett Till, something like that. Anyway, so I reimagined part of like a scene or two from Emmett Till's perspective. And um, that was the first time I realized I could like make things up and, you know, write completely new things and 
I didn't have to really make too much up because I was basing it off of an already existing scene. But um, yeah, but then the teacher or the graduate teacher liked it. And she put it in like the little student literature review. And then after that, I declared English as my major and started taking creative writing classes. And it was like downhill from there, you know? Wow. So after you wrote this story and then declared your major in English and and went down this rabbit hole of words, what did you discover about yourself and like what you wanted to do in the world? Because switching from business to English is a big thing. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, before that, I was um, I thought I wanted to be like an engineer or an architect, like I was into building things. And and like my older brother, one, one of my older brothers, he's a, like a car mechanic. So he was always building cars and motorcycles and stuff. So when I declared business, I was just like, I had to declare something. So I just said business. I, I, I didn't want to go into business at all, you know, but uh, once I declared English, that was it. And I think I always wanted to be creative in some way. So I think I found something and in a way it's sort of constructive, like, like building things or designing things, writing stories to me. I feel like I'm building them as I'm writing them in that sort of engineering sort of way. So I want to get to that, but you said something interesting about building a story like an engineer. What do you mean by that? I guess it's just in my head. Um, It's probably you know, abstract in some way, but it's probably very, um, I guess, concrete in other ways. Like I kind of just work paragraph to paragraph, sentence to sentence. And like when I, uh, when I'm writing something, if I get stuck, I just, every time I, every day, I, if I'm working on a story every day, I start at the beginning, I read all the way through and then try and build on that if I get stuck again the next day I just start from the beginning I just it's all about the flow of the words and the flow of the sentences the beginning is the foundation at the bottom and I build up from there it's the same scratch the same itch of wanting to like when I was a kid I used to like build little model cars and things like that and you'd have to like build it paint it you know there's all these different processes behind it and um and I think writing is the same way for me Okay, so you just wanted to write and make this living off of words. What does that look like in your life? Because after you graduate, you have an English degree and you go into writing. How are you how are you living? How are you surviving in the world? Office jobs, just office job after office job, you know, just because they were easier jobs. And I knew I could do them and I could leave them there. Um, I wasn't super career minded. I've never been that way. I'm fine with not. You know, I've gotten lucky with certain things like owning a house and stuff like that. But like, uh, you know, I never had a lot of money. I'm not very materialistic. So um, or the things I do want don't cost very much. You know what I mean? I'm not into like jewelry and anything like that. So um, it's just pretty basic, like artistic life, I guess. So in doing all of these different office jobs, when did the writing piece begin for you or when did it start or was it happening all at the same time? When I moved to Portland, uh, you know, I moved out here. I'm originally from Virginia. I moved to Portland in 07 and I just uh, on a humble just answered a Craigslist ad for an office job, just trying to get something going immediately. And it ended up working at a, uh, a black owned diversity consulting firm. Just, you know, Portland's very white. And the fact that I landed a job at a black firm, you know, totally uh, just like 
I don't know, just total luck. And then for, I was doing that for about eight years. And then eventually the company folded and then uh, had like a year of unemployment, you know, and, and then, uh, and I, I was working on these stories, you know, and finally I was like, well, this is my chance. I better make it happen. And I tried plenty other times to like try and get something going with agents and editors and stuff. And I had a few brushes here and there, but um, it stuck this time. It, it, it took, I guess. So I got lucky. Yeah, because I'm like, you're just kind of like stumbling through life and doing whatever. And I was like, so where do the stories come in? So were you always writing and working on these stories your entire time after you got your MFA? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I was working on uh, not these exact stories, but other stories that were failures, basically. Like I've written, I've probably written like three novels, bunch of stories, you know, and uh just trying to make something happen. And, you know, uh, especially with the novel stuff, um, the publishing world tells you like, you, we want novels, we want a novel, we want a novel. And like, I think even uh, maybe you talked to Don Teal yep. about that too. And um, so you think like, I should write a novel, but like, maybe I just probably wasn't um, mature enough or good enough to write a novel yet. And, um, or a lot of things probably, you know, I just probably wasn't all the way there. I hadn't done enough. And, you know, some of it is just learning that the stuff doesn't just happen in five minutes. Like you got to really work on something, revise it, revise it, rethink it and all that stuff. So, but um, yeah, so I was just, ever since once I got an MFA, I knew that's what I wanted to do. And I just kept doing it. I would like one novel I had did kind of get, a couple of agents were kind of in, interested in it. And uh, I'd had one story published um, that's in the book that it was published in Kowloon and an editor at Amistad way before my editor at Amistad now saw it and was like, do you have a novel? And I was like, sure. And then I sent it to her and she's like, ah, it's kind of not as good as the story. And I was like, yeah, you're probably right. And I'd been holding on to this novel for like 10 years. And it was like based on people in my family, you know, I was holding on to the dream hard, you know, I was trying to make it, <laughs> I was trying to make it happen. And uh, Chris. <laughs> yeah, at, at some point I realized I had to just like, let it go. It just wasn't working, you know? And that's, uh, you know, that's one thing I've learned with writing is like, uh, the inspiration has to be there. Oh my gosh. I can go in so many different directions. <laughs> I've never heard anyone say the story is a failure or the novel was a failure. I've heard them say, I stopped working on it. I'm going to come back to it. I've never heard someone just say it's an outright, it's just outright a failure. What makes it a failure in your opinion? Yeah. I mean, maybe failure is too strong of a word, but um, I'm fine with that word just because that's kind of, uh, I guess that allows me to just be like, whatever, it's not working, moving on. Like that didn't work. You know, sometimes when I'm writing, I feel like you can gas yourself and trick yourself into thinking like, oh, this is, this is dope. And this is going to, this is going to work and everything. And, and uh, I think the possibility of like, yeah, there's a huge possibility. It's not going to work. Cause I've, it, it's happened to me plenty of times or it's not going to turn out the way I wanted it to. And so um, to me, failing isn't like test necessarily bad, I guess. So it's not like I failed at life or something. It's just like, yeah, that, I've wrote it. It was okay, but it just didn't, it didn't hit like how I wanted it to. So, you know, let me write something now. So what was that story that you sent in to the editor at Amistad? Not your current editor, but the one that she then asked you for the novel and it turned out to be a no. What was that story? 
Yeah, it's uh, the story Cowboys in the book, which is, um, yeah, which is, uh, it's about two security guards at like a wax museum, and which is just an off the wall idea. So like, um, uh, I'd gone to the Callaloo Writers Workshop. This is like an 07. And um, I guess we could submit stories to them you know, to the letter, to the journal. And they took, they took that story, which I was surprised by. And then next thing I know, and edit like the editor hit me up and uh, she liked that the story was so different, I guess, you know what I mean? Did you ever consider self-publishing as a way for you to get into the kingdom so-called, or were you always trying to go the traditional route? I thought about it, especially when this book was, uh, um, so I got an edit. I got an agent in 2018, but he, uh, so he was like real gung ho about it. He's like, yo, this could sell in like a weekend or it could take forever. And it ended up taking forever. It took me like a year, you know, and uh, of sending it out and getting rejected and everything. And then at some point I realized, I wondered if like, maybe I'm just not what I write just isn't, you know, what they want, you know, what, you know, maybe it just isn't what they want to publish. So I actually thought about, self-publishing i was thinking like what would i you know down to like cover designs and things like that i was asking like a friend of mine who does graphic design to like come up with a design for me and then around the time i was thinking that that's when my editor at amistad just all of a sudden came out of nowhere and said she wanted the book so let's talk about that that journey of publishing because at the very beginning you mentioned that you would have given this story away so like what was that journey like for you to to find your agent and to go through the revision process with them and then before getting the deal with Amasad? um some people write stories and then like each story they write then they send that one out and trying to get it published in a journal or something like I, I wasn't worried about that I figured let me write the whole book and then I can do all that. And then I can try and find an agent and stuff. So um, that's basically what I did. I queried like 50 agents. I think I only heard back from 13 of them. And most of those were rejections. My agent now, Dan Mandel, he jumped on it immediately. So I was lucky, you know, um, just to get to that point. And then, he sends the book out and he's like, yo, this might, this might sell in like a, on Monday, you know, if he sends it out on Thursday or whatever, it didn't. And and then he's like, and then, you know, he's giving me rejections. I'm totally complaining about, I'm like, what are they talking about? They're crazy. They don't know what they're talking about. And then, then at some point it was just like, there was just nothing, you know, it was just like, even the nose stopped happening. And I, he's like, no, we're going to keep sending it out. So then, I was like, all right. He's like, let me know of any other places we haven't sent. So then I was like, well, let's maybe we should work on some like small presses. Maybe I'm not a big, big publisher kind of writer. I don't know. Because mm. like I said, at that point, I just wanted the book to be out. And he's like, yeah, we'll do that. And, you know, I entered into some like book contests where basically you get like a thousand dollars or something if you want it. And I didn't even win those. So, like, <laughs> so like, uh, so and then he, then he had Amistad on there. He's like, and I was like, oh, Amistad. I mean, I never even thought about them because uh, I've always read the books, you know what I mean? But they were more traditional black narrative or like uh, like Edward Jones, who I love, but I'm like, I don't write like Edward Jones. So I thought they would, I've, I just figured they wouldn't be into it, but he sent it out. And then Tracy Sherrod, my editor, 
like we talked like a few days after he sent it out it happened really fast you know and it was like a long slow burn and then all of a sudden it finally happened and then from there it's just uh you know a lot of slow a lot more slow movement you know what i mean how did that weigh on you all those years of working on it the the trying to find the agent the rejection you talked about you know trying to do it yourself to do self publishing before it finally hit how did that weigh on you like your confidence and 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 everything else oh man heavily like the whole time it was just weird because um the whole time the books get rejected by uh publishers i was sending the stories out myself to journals and they were getting picked up like fast you know what i mean so it's not um but yeah, I mean, I would go to the gym in the morning and, you know, lift weights. And in between sets, I'd be like looking at my phone, like constantly trying to check my email to see if anything's popping up. And then, and then damn near having like an anxiety attack. Like if this doesn't work, man, like what, you know, cause this is the only thing I've really ever wanted to do. The only thing I was working toward, you know? So I'd have to remind myself of all these different things. And, um, you know, and just keep going. A lot of it is just keep, you know, that's what I tell people, you know, younger writers, just like, don't stop, just keep going. It's like anything, as long as you keep going, you're going to see some sort of success, you know what I mean? So, um, yeah, it's just hard. I mean, it's scary. And it's, a lot of it's just being bold and following through and just don't stop. So, But in the process of you finally getting the agent and the deal for the book, I think what stands out about it is because all the stories are so different. Like, I've never read anything like that. Not with black characters. Right. Like, Cowboys was different. And uh, then we were the Norrises with the, the witness protection. How to be a dick in the 21st <laughs> century. I mean, all of these stories are just so off the wall. Everything is so imaginative. Do you think that being able to let the novel go allowed you to imagine just anything that you wanted to because you didn't have any limits and you had nothing holding you back that you were trying to push so hard? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that was the lesson from letting that go. Um, Because that cowboy story, I actually wrote that in uh, when I was in graduate school. And it was like way, you know, it was a terrible version of it, but it was that basic idea, you know. So I was kind of, I was writing just straight off the, you know, off the dome back then, you know, and then I think, you know, Street Lit kind of hit around that time and, and and I was influenced by that. And I saw the parallels with like people in my family. And so that's probably why I went that direction. But then, um, yeah, by letting it go, I finally was able to, uh, just go back to the way I was writing before all that. So I kind of took like a, I won't say it was a wrong turn, but I took a left turn for a little bit and then I can't finally came back. But then on the other, you know, other side of the coin is um, before I wrote these stories, I was writing this crazy novel that was just too, it was too out there for, for at least for me, you know what I mean? So then I had to dial it back and then I had to find like a sort of, uh, uh, middle ground to uh, to write these stories. All right, Black and Published family, it is time for the reading of Give My Love to the Savages. And if you're not familiar with the book, here's a quick preview. So Give My Love to the Savages is a short story collection of nine stories that explore the Black experience, but also Black masculinity. 
Here's Chris. All right. Um, I'm just going to read from the first story, um, which is uh, means a lot to me because based on my life, it's probably the most autobiographical story um, I'll probably ever write. But um, it's called Every Time They Call You Nigger. It happens first in kindergarten. You're five. You and your classmates are playing soccer against the first graders. This is at St. James Catholic School in Falls Church, Virginia, a school your parents will soon decide is too goddamn expensive. In a year, they will send you to public school where you will hear the word more often, but this is before all that. You're on a hot blacktop in a roiling sea of kids. It seems like there are 10 games going at once, multiple balls, multiple goals. You've been alive for only five years. You don't know how the game works, so you stand near the goal like everyone else. The ball happens to come your way. You try to kick it. You actually connect. And your luck, the ball gets by the redheaded first grader in goal. Everyone goes crazy except him. He looks back at you with fire in his freckled face. He calls you the word just once, nigger. You've never heard it before. The venom in his voice tells you it isn't good. Your friend Jerry jumps on the redhead and drags him to the ground. Jerry is way darker than you and knows the meaning of the word even at five. The back of the kid's head hits the pavement, sounding like someone cracking open a coconut. There's blood everywhere. Kids scatter. The redhead gets led away by a team of nuns, his white dress shirt now wet and bright red. Everyone watches him leave before going back to their games. When things settle down, you move away from goal. You aren't stupid. You let yourself get swallowed by that sea of kids so no one else can call you any other new names. The year is 1980 and you're what's called mixed. From that day in kindergarten on, though, the world considers you black. Not quite all the way black, but black, black enough to be called nigger. You even look black or mixed or like you've got some black in you. This is what people tell you without you asking. If your mother's black, they say you're black. That's the rule. So all your bases are covered. You're fucking black. Your father is white of German and Irish descent. Your last name in German means peace. You're a piece of this and a piece of that. You wouldn't want to be anything else. In your house, the word nigger exists, but mostly in the abstract. Your three older half-brothers from your mother's first marriage, whose mother, whose father is black and whom you grow up with, may occasionally say it when your mother isn't around. She doesn't approve of the word. She's lived through segregation. She's been bust. The word is ugly to her, but at family reunion, she still laughs with all her siblings and cousins as they call each other the word as a punchline with love and affection. You see the word transform from slimy larva into a nimble butterfly. You watch it take flight. Thank you. So I'm glad that you mentioned that it was the closest to autobiographical that you would ever write because as I was reading the first story, I was like, I know this is fiction, but it reads like a memoir. Right. right? <laughs> and I think it also sets the tone for the collection as a whole being that race, I don't think is, you know, the primary subject of the stories, but it's always there in the background and in the situations of the, the and in the situations that the characters encounter. So you have this line that says, you know, you walk through the valley of the shadow of race. You will fear no evil. 
how has your view of race as a construct and how it functions in society in these situations that Black people can find themselves in, how have you been able to, you know, mine through that to get to the truth of it, to put it into fiction? I guess, like, my father's white, my mother's Black, um, but I grew up around my mother's family. That story basically just started with one day, I'm just, I was just thinking back about that time that, I mean, that how it happens in that first scene is exactly how it happened to me. And uh, I was just thinking like how crazy that scene was like the kid, my friend, Jerry, like I barely changed names in that story. Like my friend's name was Jerry. And that's exactly what happened. He calls me the name. My friend jumps on him and there's like blood everywhere. And he just, and I was like, I was five years old, you know? And I started to think like, that's crazy. Like I I didn't block that memory out or anything. Like I always remember, but then, but you know, you get older. And I mean, I wrote that story when I was, I'm 46, 45 now. And I wrote that maybe three years ago. So, I mean, basically that's, I knew it would be a good story, at least for me to write just for myself, just cause uh, it would examine all these things that were, uh, I guess, going on for as long as I can remember. And I actually wrote that story around. I had a few encounters with like uh, racial stuff happening in Portland and people like overhearing someone saying nigger or something that not with a hard R, you know what I mean? And not, you know, and just being like, what you know and just thinking like because at some point when i was a kid like it it seemed like and i talk about that in that story is like it seemed like the word kind of was going away well not going away but people were afraid to say it they weren't saying it as openly and then now it seems like it's come back but um for whatever reason you know race is always just going to be a part of every black person's life in america and that's why what i wanted to examine that word because that's in every black person's life either in a good way or a bad way you know it could happen be that way simultaneously i think that totally comes across because even in the story section that you read and then throughout the story you you touch on it i mean it's not explicit but anyone that knows history will recognize that you know the one drop rule so you know your mom's black so that makes you black or then even going back to the days of slavery where it was children followed the matrilineal line because that made them property. Right. Um, and then you have this line here that says, you know, this one word follows you everywhere you go, like a black cloud or a guardian angel. What else in life feels as close as kin as that word? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> I mean, just... Um, cause like, I mean, even like masculine, like I try, you know, I go into masculinity and stuff like it seemed like that word meant, it meant so many things, you know, the concept of the real nigga or you're a street nigga, if you can say this, or if you sound, if you say it a certain way, if you have, if it sounds right coming out of your mouth and that means you're blacker than, you know, say someone who, I don't know, like some Brian Gumble person or something who might not be able to pull off the accent you know what i mean you know it's just it's just an odd odd word you know and it's so it's so like this book i wanted to write about a book about america really and that that word is so american because it's like it's nowhere else really it's just a weird word and how it's just spread everywhere and like whereas other uh racial slurs kind of don't you know there are other you know aren't as ubiquitous i guess as 
you know, the quote unquote, the N word, like, like the, it's even, even the word to describe the word is a word like the N word, you know what I mean? So, um, yeah, I don't know if that answered your question. (laughs) No, but it kind of sets up, you know, the further discussion because there is no equivalent to that word, not in meanness, not in when it's said with love, there, there, there is no equivalence. And talking to you now, I think it, it really does, you know, set up the entire collection for what you say is a conversation about uh, examining America. Because then the next story is how to be a dick in the 21st century, where, and I guess this is a spoiler, spoiler alert, where the main character turns into an actual penis and then realize realize that he's a misogynist and a rapist right yeah (laughs) and 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 like in in that examination and and being i guess so fantastical in the fiction of it it allows the deep criticism or even for the reader to take away like wait that's that's not right right kind of uh aspect of what's happening in our country today and it sounds like were you very intentional about that yeah definitely um like with the first story, I knew it would kind of catch people's attention. And, um, but then at some point I realized with the collection, I was trying to examine masculinity, the forces on like black masculinity, but then also, um, you know, like, like in Lake, Lake No Negro, where this black guy is, uh, fetishized by a white couple and he doesn't even realize it, you know? But um, but with the the how to be a dick story, um, I, then I realized I kind of was I needed to examine masculinity in the way of the absurdity of masculinity and the absurdity of men and how they you know at one point would be like well that's just the good old boy that's just boys you know locker room talk and like they get you know they they people justify like certain things and then and then. Uh, and then I just thought, what if he woke up one day and he's cursed to be a, <laughs> a walking, talking penis? And then that's it. You know what I mean? That's his life. So um, each section starts with like when you realize this about that you're a dick or if when you wake up one morning and you're a dick, you realize it's not any different from any other morning. And and you realize he's been a dick forever. <laughs> so um, just like with the word nigger, I wanted to examine it look at it from all these different angles with masculinity. I wanted to look at masculinity from a bunch of different angles. It's always intentional, but sometimes it's some, sometimes you just something pops up while you're writing and you're just like, Oh, I'm just going to go with that. And then, then you can start to see what you can do with it. I think that examination of masculinity comes through throughout. And it's not just examination of masculinity as adult men, but also as children with, um, and then we were the Norris's about, the two, the two boys and then that's talking about not only masculinity but sexuality in this crazy story of you know witness protection and not being able to to say your true identity and friendship and uh, and all of that what from your own experience do you think helped you give these characters so much body in that they seem so like they seem so very real even though the the situations are kind of far out and crazy they all still seem so very real and so very urgent and so very present i think a lot of it is uh i was lucky to grow up in a diverse community 
and in a diverse family. Um, like even, uh, like I grew up in Virginia and uh, Northern Virginia, right outside of DC. And, and, you know, I mean, it's white everywhere, but there were a lot of, I grew up with like, you know, Iranian kids, um, Asian kids, you know, every, you know, obviously my whole black family. Um, but then uh, for a time, my dad's from Washington state and, um, and, uh, he met my mother in Virginia. He moved East and whatever had, they had me and everything. But then at some point, you know, we moved to the West and, you know, I ended up being in up North of Seattle for, you know, five or six years, something like that. And, uh, and then there, my friends were like black and native American kids. So I think just seeing other people's, um, humanity, you know, just different people's plights, I guess. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to go into all these different kind of characters, even though they're all black, um, just because, you know, blackness isn't just a monolith. We're all different, all shapes and sizes. You know what I mean? I just wanted to write characters I've never seen before and, um, and just write about uh, dynamics that don't get uh, put out there and like a ton. Like I just want to fully imagine everything. And uh, I think that's what the difference between, you know, pretty good writing and really good writing is, uh, is like, Things are fully imagined. You have this story about the 1992 L.A. riots, and it's about this father and the son, and the son is biracial, the father is white, and they go on this crazy ride around checking his property in which he leaves one of them. What are you trying to convey? Because I was like, this story is so wrong by the time I got to the end of it, but I understood it. And I was like, I don't even know where this came from. Right. Um... A friend of mine who's white, she told me a story that her cousin, um, he was flying into L.A. basically when the uprising just started. And um, and uh, I guess his dad asked him to, like, guard something, you know. So I instantly thought that would be a good idea. And as soon as she told me that story, I went back in time in my head instantly. And I remembered all these different things. I was like, oh, man, no one's ever written a story about that that I know of. And it was such a unique situation. And as soon as she told me that, I knew I'd make the son biracial. I knew the father would be white. And but it, as far as everything else, you know, the car dealerships and like driving around, I realized I had to make them sort of like travel around L.A. And then eventually it's sort of like a Dante's Inferno kind of thing. They go keep going down the rings and rings until finally, you know, you get to the end. But um, I knew I could parallel um what happened to Rodney King maybe possibly in the story in the character's past. I knew um, you know, a few uh mixed kids that had problematic relationships with one or both of their parents or one's one or side of their family or, you know, stuff like that. So I knew I could um examine I was lucky that I didn't have that kind of stuff in my life, but I saw it in other people. So I knew it was something I could sort of examine and then find some stuff out about, I guess. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you about that because the writing in this story specifically about what it's like to be biracial is so acute that I was like, well, are you talking about yourself here? Right. Or are you talking about the characters? So like, 
Um, you say the emotional effects of being of mixed race in this country, how it led to antisocial behavior and the desperate quest to fit in. That it made me wonder, like, well, are, are we struggling here with identity? What's happening? And like, I think at the end of it, I wrote, you know, do you find it a privilege to be able to pass even though you identify as black? Yes, definitely. Definitely. I mean, um, and that, I mean, that's another thing uh, I wanted to examine with a lot of these stories is just, I feel privileged. Like my, my older brothers are, you know, much darker than me, you know what I mean? And I've seen like my other, my uh, brother closest to me, they're much older than me too. They're from my mother's uh, first marriage. So like the closest brother to me is 10 years older than me, but we all grew up together. I also know, you know, I could be with them and people don't even, some people don't realize that we're brothers, you know what I mean? They just think like I'm some uh, Hispanic dude they know or something, you know? So I, I, I'm obvious, I'm totally aware of that, but I wanted to examine all these different things and just privilege. And I want to examine also just how different, uh, just different sides of blackness, you know what I mean? You don't have to be hood to be black. So it's just the diversity of blackness, you know, sometimes that doesn't get put out there um, enough. I think in the collection as a whole, it's very evident that Blackness is not a monolith um, and that there's no one way or right way or wrong way to be Black. I read from an article that you posted that, you know, this collection took you 20 years to put out. Now that it's out, is it everything that you hoped it would be? Yeah, definitely. Um, Actually, it's 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 more it's better than I thought it was going to be. Truthfully, <laughs> I couldn't have um, imagined doing it any earlier. I probably wouldn't have been ready or mature enough for it. So, yeah. I totally get it. What do you want readers to get out of this collection? Um, basically, I just want them to see race and blackness and masculinity in a different way than maybe they've seen before. Um, uh, I mean, the writer side of me wants them to just realize how dope I am as a writer, you know what I mean? But what I want people to get to see all these different things, like I don't have the answers, but I want them to see the questions that I'm putting out there and, you know, different portrayals and see that like, it wouldn't like some people like, this is different from other books. I'm like, I'm like, yeah, you got it. Then you got it. You know, you understood what it was. So like, um, yeah, but like just racism, masculinity, blackness, seeing that these are different stories and, um, you know, that it's good to have uh, that kind of diversity, especially in, you know, black literature. All right. So let's go into this speed round. What is your favorite book? My favorite book is James Allen McPherson's Elbow Room. It's a story collection. Who is your favorite author? I'd probably say James Baldwin, but maybe James Allen McPherson would be right behind that. What is your favorite hip-hop group or artist? Or who is your favorite hip-hop group or artist? Uh, Big Daddy Kane. And along those same lines, what is the GOAT hip-hop album? The hard one. <laughs> That's really hard. I mean, everyone says like Paid in Full by Eric B. and Rakim. Rakim. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Illmatic, I think, is one of one, one of my favorites. Uh, uh, Enter the 36 Chambers by Wu-Tang. Yeah, those would probably be 
up there for me. I'm probably going to miss that one that's so obvious, but. Yeah, it's all good. I just noticed you always have hip hop in your, um, on your feed or in your story. So I was like, I got yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> What's something that you want that you don't have? You said you're not very materialistic, but that, now that makes you wonder. There's got to be something. I mean, I like I like a big house, not a, not huge, but I like a house with enough space. I live in a really small house <laughs> at this moment. I like to have enough space, um, more bedrooms, but not like a big mansion or anything like that. But just a nice, you know, four bedroom house or something. I don't know. I'm not really into like cars and stuff are cool, but like uh, that. I just I'm I'm kind of getting old and practical, so I just want space, you know. If money was no option, where would you live? Wow. Um, I'd live in Japan. I'd live like in Argentina. I'd live in California. I'd live in New York City. I'd live in Paris. I'd just bounce around. I'd live somewhere for like two or three months and then move somewhere else. You know, that's what I would love to do. All right. And then going full circle with that conversation, what are your goals now? I want to explore writing novels more and it's not just cause that's what they really want, but it is cause that's what they really want. <laughs> and I want to try and make, figure out a way to sort of uh, work with uh, inside of the system. If I can keep making some sort of money at this and being able to do something that I want to do creatively, um, it makes me, I guess, more focused on what I need to be doing instead of before I was just like groping in the darkness and like just trying. And then at some point you kind of sort of get what you're doing. And then it makes me want to get, do what I do, but then find new ways to do that. I have another batch of stories that I'm trying to fix up, um, see if I can, which are kind of a continuation of, of give my love to the savages. Um, just to keep, you know, just to keep going. But, um, uh, I kind of, once I've done enough of them, I feel like I want to move on to a different form and, and novels are, I'm just thinking of novels, uh, like this novel I just wrote or finished, but I'm, I'm in back, I'm back to square one again. Cause I'm just, then I mean, it's like fielding rejections. Is this book any good? It's the same thing all over again. So, but I'm cool with that. All right. And then my last question for our interview today. So you wanted to write forever and you're doing that when you're no longer here what would you like someone to write about the the legacy of words that you left behind uh i just hope they say have something good to say you know and see like like even um um like with older writers like james allen mcpherson or james baldwin like you know you kind of can't judge them on today's standards good but you could if you know history you know what the landscape was maybe when they were writing that you see how, why it was important then i hope people see you know why my book is important hopefully to this period and how what it might have been might have been saying about this period in time whereas um um and just to maybe hopefully see that it's different from other things you know um and that uh like I said, not to, you know, the writer, you know, hip hop enthusiast in me, I just want them to think of it like he was dope. He was dope. <laughs> he did his thing, you know what I mean? So, yes, and give my love to the savages. 
(laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Chris, so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Thanks. Big shout out to Chris Stuck for being here on Black and Published today. Make sure you check out Chris's debut short story collection, Give My Love to the Savages, out now from Amistad Books. And if you're not following Chris, follow him on the socials. He's at super underscore biracial on Twitter and at super underscore biracial underscore man on Instagram. That's our show for the week. If you like this episode and want more Black and Published, head to our Instagram page. It's at Black and Published, and that's B-L-K and Published. There, I posted a bonus clip from my interview with Chris, giving you a deeper dive on writing characters he's never seen and exploring the layers of Black masculinity and the strength of Black women. Make sure you check it out and let me know what you think in the comments. I'll holler at y'all next week. Peace.